All right, it's glad to have everybody in the room. The kids have been dismissed. I think we're good to go. Rob, thank you for your preparation and for your dedication. I know that it's hard for you to receive compliments, and so I want to make sure that I give them in the presence of the body so that when you're feeling, so that when you're feeling less than, the congregation can remind you that we see you, that you are heard, and that we're, you're not just heard, we're grateful for what it is that God laid on your heart. Amen? Amen. All right, so we are in our series on the parables of Jesus, everybody. Yeah, I'm excited. We're here. We're studying the words of Jesus. And last week, we talked about the dual discipline of both listening to the Word of God and reading the Word of God. And they're important. When you listen to the Word of God, your brain and your body are activated in a different way than when you read the Word of God. And God has created us as a dynamic group of people. Some people learn better by hearing. Some people learn better by reading. Some people learn better by listening and reading simultaneously. That right there should show you how unique, not just you are, but how uniquely the brain can function in each and every person. Sometimes hearing it, we get distracted. Sometimes reading it, we get distracted. Sometimes doing both, we think we're going to be keyed in. There is the noise of the world, the desires of the flesh, and there is the evil one who's out to get you. And so this morning, we're going to open up God's Word, and we're going to pause for a moment. We're going to listen to it being read. We're going to listen to it in the New Living Translation. It's a dynamic translation. It's a thought for thought. It's going to capture it. It's going to help you really understand it in some modern language. And then when we read it, we're going to read the text from the English Standard Version. It's a more literal sense. And it's going to help us with the actual language that is being translated and interpreted. So it's going to be focused more on the language than the overall thought. So when we listen, we're getting the overall thought, and when we read, we're actually getting into the meat of the words. Amen? Amen. All right. So I want to ask that we would bring the lights down one more time. We're going to listen. You can close your eyes if that helps you listen better. Then as we read the text, I'm going to ask you to open your eyes. I'm going to read it as I'm seated, and then we're going to watch a video. All right? So let's do that. Let's, uh, let's get the text, or yeah, let's get the video prepped. Building on a solid foundation. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of walls. Let's turn our attention to the screens. If you have your Bibles, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 46 and reading through verse 49. Beginning in verse 46, Luke records the words of the Master. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. 
And when a flood arose, the steam broke, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Let's play the video. At Loveland, Colorado, people are standing around in groups drinking coffee brought in by the Red Cross and waiting to hear about families and friends, to hear about those who were not seen since a wall of water roared into a high, narrow river canyon and in 10 minutes swept everything before it. 80 to 90, we know, were killed. Others simply disappeared. There is mud over everything, three feet deep. Mike Jackson is there. The Big Thompson River Canyon is 35 miles long, and every mile looks just like this. The floodwaters were more than 20 feet deep, powerful enough to crumple mobile homes and wash away cars. There were several small towns along the river, but they no longer exist, and there is little left to salvage. Survivors tell stories that sound much the same. We stayed in our, in our house and uh, watched the water rise and watched our garage go away and our cars float down. We heard from our neighbors that our neighbor just below us, they got in their car, had their lights on, the little Toyota, and uh, we were screaming at them to get out of the car. They didn't get out of the car. Pretty soon it tilted up on end and then the lights went out and a flashlight went on in the car and they floated on down through the narrows. The Sheriff's Patrol and the Forest Service have set up remote outposts throughout the canyon in places just wide enough for helicopters to land. It is impossible to drive here because the road has been washed out and the terrain is too rough for horses or four-wheel drive vehicles. Most of these rescue workers hiked in over the mountains in the rain yesterday. Helicopters could not fly because of the weather. All survivors who wanted to get out have been taken out. The main job now is to find the dead. Workers have to dig through tons of rock and silt and debris to find the victims. Officials say many of the dead may never be found. There's so many houses and so many places that haven't been checked. Like we saw places where there were just uh, tarps that were strung up. People had got up, you know, above the river to try and keep dry. And we saw, you know, if we saw one place between a rock or somebody had you know, we couldn't tell if there was anybody there or not because we couldn't get to it. The walls were too steep and a helicopter couldn't land there to get them either. Transportation is a major problem now. Workers are trying to repair parts of the road so the search will go more quickly. But the flood left little for them to work with. Mike Jackson, NBC News, The Big Thompson Canyon. This video is helpful for us. It brings to the forefront of our mind the devastation that a storm and its effects can have. It is unfortunate that in the church in America, this wonderful parable has been reduced to a Sunday school song. The wise man built his house upon the rock, his house upon the rock, his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the walls, the rain came tumbling down. Yeah. And the floods came up, came down, and the floods came up. The rains came down, and the floods came up. And the house was built, was, no, see? <laughs> this is, but this is the reality of the situation. People are humming. They kind of know the words. They don't really know the words. And this is what, Kirsten really knows the words. And this is 
This is what the parable, the words of Jesus have been reduced to. So just do! (laughs) Just do. Here's your lollipop. Go in peace, serve the Lord with joy. It's like, what? We talk about doing exegesis in this church. The practical definition of knowing the whole so that we better understand the particulars. Okay? The importance and the value of knowing the whole so that we better understand the particulars. This parable was never intended to be read in isolation, and it was never intended to be turned into a short, trite song. These are the words of the master. Videos like this that we just watched help us come to grips with the devastation and the destruction that a storm has the capacity to bring with it. And we'll trade that video and the reality of having to think about that for the song any day. This reality, the reality that we watched in this video would have been absolutely clear to Jesus' first century audience. In the East, where the summers are hot and dry and hard. (laughs) But that's the time to build. And so am I going to hire a builder who's going to find a hard piece of ground and build the home that my family is going to reside in on the clay because it appears to be a firm foundation? Or is he actually going to put in the work and do the hard thing in the heat of the sun and dig down? And you might ask, well, dig down how deep? And the answer is always the same. Until you hit the rock! Until you hit the rock. (laughs) You don't stop before because when the storm comes, if your house is not built on the firm foundation that is the rock, you best believe death and destruction is the final outcome. (laughs) Jesus is not mincing words here and he's not telling a cute story. He's telling his audience, your life hangs in the balance. Eternity is at stake. And if you don't get that now, like the seed sown on the shallow soil, you ain't going to last. And we turn these things into a song. We need to wake up the historical and the cultural context of what Jesus is saying is so valuable if we're actually going to walk away with what he wanted his audience to walk away with. And how many of us know that the words of Jesus are truth and we're to pray to be sanctified in the truth? So there's no compromising and there's no sacrificing here. There's no trying to rush through it to get to the end so we can go watch the football game or go drink a beer and relax or hang out. No, we're here to open the Word of God and to be confronted by the Word of God and to ask the Spirit of God to change us. And until He does that, you shouldn't want to leave. Unfinished business, church. How much of us are stuck checking the box doing church that we're actually not serving God? Come on. You can find this parallel in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. And Jesus is not offering literal advice for trade workers in the construction world. 
like all of his parables, every single one of them, he's telling a fictional story, but he's using familiar, common, everyday situations to what? To illustrate spiritual realities. That's what he's doing here. Don't miss the forest for the trees, everybody. Jesus is not telling a cute little story, strumming a little lute, and expecting you to turn it into a song like David. He's talking about eternity. The greater context of the parable. Note its location. Open up your Bible and look at where the parable is located. It is the consummate word of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and in the parable, and the parable is the consummate close to the, to the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. Every public speaker, every person with a presentation, every teacher seeks to wrap the close of their teaching up and put a nice little bow on it so that everyone understands exactly what's going on. And when you come to the understanding that this parable is sitting at the greatest hits of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or it's sitting on the end of the parable of the plain in Luke's account, you better wake up and say, the best that Jesus had to give is given, and this is how he closes that sermon. Wake up and pay attention. Don't miss this. Because if you heard it all and you do nothing with it, worthless. The parable was obviously selected by the greatest teacher who ever walked the face of the earth to close out his greatest recorded sermon. And we turn it into a song. The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain provides the example of par excellence in Jesus' teaching. Jesus identifies himself in this teaching as the true interpreter of the law. You have heard it said, but I say this. You have heard it said, and I say this. He not only identifies himself in this teaching, in this sermon, as the true interpreter of the law, he speaks of himself as the one who fulfills its purpose. Matthew chapter 5, I did not come to abolish the law. I came so that it might be fulfilled. Thematic aspects to consider in the Sermon on the Mount. Now in our opening introduction, we talked about the thematic principle that Mark used in his gospel. Remember? I said that thematically, Jesus was presenting, was being presented as the one offering a second exodus in Mark's gospel. And we looked at how he was baptized and how following his baptism, he did things like make the lame walk. Okay? That was Mark chapter 3, right? And then we turn and we look at Mark chapter 5. Turn in your Bibles if you got it there. Because I don't want you to miss this. And I don't want you to just hear it. But then after he shows himself as the one who claims that he can forgive sin. The thing that only God can do. And then he does the thing that can be seen that only God can do. Make the lame walk. by pro So therefore proving that he also has the power to forgive sin on earth. You go to Mark chapter 5. I'm sorry, go to chapter 4, the end of 4, and you see how Jesus takes authority over the wind and the waves. The very same thing Yahweh in the Exodus narrative did, taking power and authority over the water, using the wind and creating two sets so that they could walk through on dry land. The same one who spoke and split the sea was the same one who had the power to tell the sea, stand still. 
Then he healed the man with the demon. Okay? When he drove the spirit out, the spirits, plural, out of legion into the pigs, the pigs ran off the cliff, they fell into the water, and they died. Again, think about the Exodus narrative. When Jesus had taken authority over the water, Pharaoh and his army went in, and as they were chasing Israel, he dropped the water, he destroyed Pharaoh, he destroyed Pharaoh's army, and it was the greater miracle that the demons wanted freedom from legion, and they thought if they could just go to the pigs, they wouldn't be cast into the dark place. And the same outcome of Pharaoh and his army was the same outcome of the Satan and his demons. Death and destruction in the water. Then we talked about the feeding of the 5,000 after Israel had gone through the wilderness. In Mark's gospel, Mark shows Jesus feeding the 5,000. Remember the manna that came down and fed Israel? We were talking about thematic presentation of who Jesus is and who Jesus believed he was in accordance with Mark's gospel. We're at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has identified himself as the true interpreter of the law and the one who fulfills its purpose. And what does he do? Just as Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the law, Jesus goes up the mountain and he gives his new law. Jesus is saying, I'm the greater Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18, God, Yahweh, will raise up a prophet from within Israel. Listen to him. And Moses was not just talking about Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment. Joshua had to follow in Moses' footsteps. The judges had to follow in Joshua's footsteps. Samuel had to follow and close out the judges and walk into the prophetic category. David. It goes on and on, but the culmination is in Christ. What is Matthew's theme here? He's showing Jesus as the greater Moses. How are we supposed to understand that? Turn back in your beginning pages to Matthew's gospel and look at what happens. Jesus is born, and what does Herod do? What does he do? He says, kill all the babies. All of them. When Moses was born, he was born in the same predicament where the Pharaoh over Egypt was saying, destroy the male Israelite children. And Moses is a redeemer of Israel. He is God to Pharaoh by the word of God. You shall be like God to Pharaoh, Yahweh says. And now Jesus is in the same predicament where the babies are going to be killed, where does he flee? Flees to Egypt. Can you not see the theme that Matthew is painting about Jesus being the greater Moses? That's the introduction of Matthew's gospel. We get to the Sermon on the Mount, and just as Moses went up to receive the law, Jesus don't need nobody to give him the law. He is the one who gave the law to Moses at Sinai through angels. Now he's giving the law in the new coming covenant. You might say, now we're not under the law. I would say the law of grace in the new covenant. Can you see how vitally important it is to read this parable in its proper context? It's the culmination of the greatest teachings of Christ. We got to stop and we got to look at the whole so that we can better understand the particulars. We need to ask the question. I mean, do you think the author is trying to tell us something by doing this? And if Mark did it, and Matthew did it, and Luke is a part of the synoptics with Mark and Matthew, how's Luke doing it? Right? These are the questions we should be asking. What is the author intending to teach me through his writings? Because a good Jew... They would have picked up on all these things. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water and he calmed the wind and the waves, Psalm 107. 
Just make a note if you're a note taker. Go home and read it. There's going to be about three to five verses in there, and you're just going to be like, Jesus is Yahweh. (laughs) That's his claim. And you can't miss it in the text we read. Who hears my words? (laughs) Not the God, not the words. He doesn't say the words of God. He says, those who hear my words and do them. If you have seen me, who have you seen? The Father. I and the Father are what? One. Is he mincing words here, church? But so often people will tell you, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. That's because they don't know how to read the text of Scripture in context. And they want to strip things away, and they want to make assertions, and they don't actually want to submit to what the author who wrote the stinking book is actually trying to communicate. Amen. Amen. That's why when we started this series, we asked the question, who did Jesus believe that he was? We, that's how we started this whole walk into the parables. And if you weren't with us, go check in on YouTube and watch that sermon. So we're asking the question, are the authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are they trying to communicate something in utilizing thematic ideals in their presentation of the life of Christ? Because these things don't fall in the same places and in the same order, which tells us chronology is not their highest priority. Theology is their highest priority. And that's not a problem for a first century author. And truth be told, it's not a problem for many modern authors either. But we like to pretend it is. So, the placement of the parable, is it important? And if the placement of the parable is important, what about the instructions to hear and do? How important are they? Now we've set the greater context in the gospel author's writings, let's talk about the historical and the cultural context for the parable. I'm going to try to get you to divorce that cute little song from your mind and your body anytime you hear about the parable of the two builders. You can be like, well, Matt, there's differences. In Matthew's gospel, it's the wise builder versus the foolish builder. And in Luke's gospel, it's the building on a foundation or on the lack of a foundation. And I would say, oh, you think that affects the overall teaching and principle? Right. (laughs) We will acknowledge the differences. Matthew had a different audience than Luke did, which means he was using different tools to communicate. And once we know that, we can ask, is the principle of the teaching the same intrinsically? And the answer through and through is yes. Jesus was a master teacher. He was a master teacher. He was the greatest rabbi that ever walked the face of the earth. He knew the Hebrew Bible through and through. Truly God, truly man. And I am convinced that as a man, he knew the Bible that existed in his day and age, Genesis to Malachi, better than any Pharisee, Sadducee, or any Sanhedrin elder. So he's teaching a first century Jewish audience. What's his backdrop, everybody? What's the backdrop of his teaching? When I'm teaching you, I'm coming with the word first. Right? Do you think that I learned that from someone? Potentially Jesus? (laughs) He's coming with the word first. But the New Testament doesn't exist in his life and ministry. So what's the backdrop? What's the foundation of Jesus' teaching? The Torah, the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, it's Genesis to Malachi. 
I would say, and then some. Yeah, you best believe he knew the wisdom of Sirach. You best believe he was born under the law in the fullness of time. You best believe he celebrated this, the Hanukkah and the festival of the oil in the lamp not burning dry. <laughs> but he's turning to the text of Scripture and he, some commentators would say, look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25. Let's put it up. When the tempest passes, thank you, Jen. It's all right, she's taking notes. Everybody should be following along to whatever degree you can. Look at the wisdom literature. When I say Jesus is one of the best teachers to ever walk the face of the earth, or the best teacher, he's standing on the wisdom literature. When the tempest passes, the storm, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. You ever think that the wise versus the foolish builder could be representing the righteous versus the wicked? It's absolutely a possibility. Could the wicked be the ones who choose not to build on the foundation, maybe because they're led by laziness and doing that which comes easiest to them? Versus the wise who builds on the foundation, who does the hard work in the midst of the burning sun on the long days in the summer because once winter comes, you can't build? <laughs> Could a passage like this be the backdrop for the parable? Every disciple, every first century Jew sitting there hearing the words of Jesus, who was a good Jew, would have been able to say, ha the rabbi is drawing on the wisdom literature. This teaching is tried, trustworthy, and true. But it's not just that the parable can be simplified down to something like this. This is an aspect of what Jesus' teaching includes. What about the prophets? Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 29 through 33. Now the text on the screen is small because I didn't want to have to move through slides. But you got your phone on your you got your Bible on your phone or your Bible in your lap. So if you can't read it, you can turn to it in your Bible. This is what the prophet Ezekiel writes. Remember, we're talking about the historical, cultural context that Jesus is speaking the parable in. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of their abominations that they have committed. As for you, son of man, this is how the Lord refers to Ezekiel over and over and over in the book of Ezekiel. Your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, listen up. <laughs> Come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. That's your first little red flag that Jesus is drawing on this as well. And they come to you as a people come, and they sit before you as many people. What's Jesus doing as he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain? Can you see this? As they come to Ezekiel the prophet, no different did they come to Jesus. And they sat before both as the people of God. And they heard what you say, but they will not do it! <laughs> For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. What's best for me? How do I get ahead? I don't care if I see people as a stepping stone. I'm trying to get to my next best. <laughs> I have no love for the community and only love for self. Which is why I can hear your words. It's also why I can ignore them. And behold, you are like them, speaking to Ezekiel, like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Do you think the repetition is supposed to draw our attention? 
What's the author doing, right? What's Jesus doing as he's teaching this parable to his audience as the close of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain? He's using their own history to tell them it's happening again. (laughs) When this comes, and come it will, they will know that what? A prophet has been among them. So Jesus is drawing on the wisdom literature as he's teaching this principle. And he's drawing on the words of the prophet. This is a love song, believe it or not, in the book of Isaiah. I'm sorry, Ezekiel. And it talks about hearing and not doing. Do we all know what this cost God's chosen people? They went into exile. They were destroyed. And only a remnant survived. And they were strangers in a land where they did not know a language. It was a tough, tough part of Israel's history. Imagine having a grandfather or a great-grandfather or a great-great-grandfather who was actually a part of the destruction and how these words would affect your heart and your mind. It's so easy for us to be divorced from this because, I mean, who do we know that was, you know, conquered, stripped from their homeland, had their family raped and murdered in front of them, and as they were stained by the blood of their family, they were hooked through the mouth, put in line with another person who was hooked through the mouth, and marched off into the heat of the distance of Babylon. (laughs) And everybody said, not me. (laughs) Notice the theme of the people who sit in the presence of the prophet. Jesus is not only the greatest rabbi to ever walk the face of the earth, he's the greatest prophet. He's the greatest priest, and he is our king. If you knew the words of the greatest prophet, priest, and king, would you listen and do? And you better be Real, real cautious before you just shake your head yes. Because some of you need to be doing an inventory of your life and how you're living it right now before you stand up and claim to be a Christian. Me first. Me first. So this is setting the backdrop. Jesus' audience is tuned in. We've got the rabbi teaching similarly to the way that Moses taught. We know that the Torah said a prophet from within the people of Israel will, raise, will be raised up. We were told to listen to him. Now we have a rabbi who's drawing on the wisdom literature and he's drawing on the words of the prophet. Is Jesus done? Absolutely not. He's just getting started. Isaiah chapter 28 Verse 14 through 18. Remember, we're asking the historical, cultural context of the audience that heard because if we don't know what they knew, we don't get to know anything. (laughs) Now, I want to give you guys a heads up real quick on the context of what's going on. Isaiah is addressing a nation that is facing invasion. This predates the Babylonian conquer and exile. This is the northern kingdom of Israel. And Assyria, King Shinashrib, is fast approaching. And as Assyria is approaching, they are knocking off the map kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Like nothing and no one can stand in their way. And Israel does not turn to Yahweh. (laughs) They turn to Egypt. They go back to the specified place in the Torah that Jesus says, not only don't go back, he says, don't look back. (laughs) 
Egypt, let us make a covenant with you. And when Assyria comes, you will dispatch your army and you will protect us from the enemy. And Egypt said, sure, we'll do that. Better with your army and us than by the time they sweep you off the map and come to our front door and you don't exist anymore. So the two together, better than the one, will be there. That's the context of what's going on right here. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, death being Egypt. (laughs) And with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through it, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. Egypt will be our great protector. Even though God has conquered Egypt and drowned them in the seas before, and it is our history books that recount it, we will not turn to Yahweh, we will turn to Egypt. (laughs) And before you shake your head and think how stupid could Israel be, look in the mirror and assess your daily life, your character, and your own values, and what you actually hold near and dear, versus what you say you love. And in falsehood we have taken shelter. Oh, there it is, the building of a house in Isaiah's parable. And it's the wrong house to be building and putting your trust in. Refuge and shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid the foundation in Zion. I am the one, Yahweh says. I don't need any help From any of you, I was gracious enough to invite you into covenant relationship. When I set the terms, you said all that you have said we will do. Oh, he's not letting them forget. This is a very subtle reminder. Israel, you are no more special than anyone else. (laughs) Deuteronomy is clear. I chose you because I set my love on your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. What did we sing this morning? Christ is my firm foundation. To even know, church, what it is that we're standing firm on. Look at this. I am the one. Yes, Lord, you are. Lay the foundation, not just in Zion, but in me. Is that our prayer? (laughs) And I will make justice the line. I love these words right here. I will make justice the line. I don't even want the Lord to think about my thoughts on justice. I need to pursue his thoughts on justice. And righteousness, the plumb line. You know what a plumb line is? So that you can measure a perfect line. Think in modern day like a chalk line. But the plumb line hangs, yes. The chalk line is stretched out. Listen to this. And hail will sweep away the refuge, the structure of lies that has been made with Egypt, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Where are you building your house, Israel? And I would ask you, church, where are you building your house? Then your covenant with death. Listen to this. If you are not in covenant with Christ, I'm here to tell you, you are in covenant with death. Any outside of covenant faith relationship with Christ will be cut off from the presence of God in the eschaton. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand when the overwhelming scourges passes through. You will be beaten down by it. Jesus says, build on the firm foundation. Isaiah says, the storm's coming. You can't stop it. (laughs) And it's not coming arbitrarily. You've played a role in bringing this storm to your front door. That's a word for some of you in the room. 
Notice that the prophet showcases two types of buildings. One that has been built in a covenant of death and one that has been laid in a future promise to come. One will fall. I'm here to tell you one is going to stand for all of eternity. So to summarize, the prophet Isaiah has no confidence in the building with which Israel has built. No confidence in their covenant with Egypt. The storm is on its way. The storm is the Assyrian army. (laughs) And the storm will destroy their building. But in the future, God will lay a new cornerstone in Zion, one that will be a sure foundation. Now, Fast forward four to six hundred years, depending on how you date the book of Isaiah. Okay? You're in the life and the ministry of Christ. He's teaching this parable. But what we so often don't know is what is actually being taught around what Jesus is teaching in his life and ministry. And this is very important for us to know. And everyone in Jesus' audience would have actually been aware of this. And we have access to all of this, but we're like the people who reduced the parable to a song. We're lazy. And we don't want to do the work. And we don't want to look at the history. And we don't want to look at the culture. And we don't want to care. We just want to, I'm going to do the words that Jesus said all the while you ain't doing squat. You're doing the opposite. Me first. Okay? Me first. So as Jesus is teaching, his disciples, in the first century, there is the Qumran sect. Okay? They have rejected the priesthood. They have rejected the temple because of its corruptness. They have moved out near the Dead Sea. And they have established community there. Because they don't want anything to do with dirty, rotten, sinful Jerusalem. What's their view of Isaiah's promise? Well, let's put it up. Because we have it recorded in a scroll that we found at the Dead Sea. And it's known as the rule of the community. And this is how the Qumran sect viewed the prophecy of Isaiah. In the council of the community, there shall be 12 men and three priests. Now listen to this. They're trying to get away from the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're trying to get away from the corrupt laws that man have established around the Torah. And this is what they, this is what they come up with. <laughs> we need 12 men and three priests perfectly versed in all that is revealed in the law. Whose works shall be truth, righteousness, justice. You, you, you recognize these words, justice and righteousness, from Isaiah? Loving kindness and humility. You can think about the other prophets being summed up here as well. When these are in Israel, and remember, they had moved away from Jerusalem, they considered themselves to be true Israel. When these are in Israel, it shall be that, tie, tie, that tried wall. That precious cornerstone. Can you see Isaiah all over this? Whose foundation shall neither rock nor sway in their place. When that storm comes, baby, when the Qumran sect has established these 15 men and their works righteousness and their understanding of the law is in place, we won't fall. Every Jew would have knew that this was going on. Every Jew would have knew this teaching. And then you got the competing view. The Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And they're saying, forget about Qumran. Those guys, they're weirdos. They're fringe. We have the cornerstone. It's been laid in the second temple and it stands and holds the Holy of Holies up. So it's not about 15 men who have an understanding of the law. It's about our geographic temple that has been built with man's hands. (laughs) That's the fulfillment of Isaiah's 
promise of the coming cornerstone. We're not waiting for it to come like the people in Qumran. It was established through Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the building of the temple, all of which Herod has added on to. So you've got one sect saying, in men, <laughs> in man's understanding, and you've got one sect saying, in a geographical space, and in a building. And it is in this context that Jesus launches his ministry with the greatest teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. And he sits down and he says, it's not about what Qumran says and it's not about the Sanhedrin. He says, I am the foundation stone. How do we know that? How do we know that, church? He says, build on his words. Go back and look at Isaiah real quick. Therefore, hear the word of who? Jesus is not mincing words. It was Yahweh who spoke to Isaiah. Jesus is saying, I am speaking to you. Isaiah was saying, build on Yahweh. Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh in the flesh. Build on me. Go back to Ezekiel. Then they will know that what? That I am the Lord. And how are they going to know this? Because what I'm going to say is going to come to pass. Do you think Jesus' parable has anything to do with your life or the life of his original audience? It has everything to do with your life. Everything to do with your life. Eternity is hanging in the balance, church. Isaiah's promise. In Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 6 is finding its inauguration in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Go to the parable. I want to read it again now. With all of this in mind, let's look at the words of the master. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I think about John chapter 17. So often, I longed like a mother hen to bring you under my wings. Jesus is speaking to you now through the Spirit and the Word, no different than he was speaking to his audience then, saints. It was clear that early on in Jesus' ministry, some of the disciples were not about it. <laughs> this opening statement gives us that realization. And we have to ask the question, are we actually about it? And before we answer, we probably want to listen very closely to what it is that Jesus is saying and what he's about to say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words, and what? Loyalty, obedience. I will show you what he's like. Are you ready to be shown? Let's go to the next slide. He is like a man building a house. Proverbs, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the books, the words are like coming, like I got my 3D glasses on, they're coming toward me who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them. This is a line for some people in the room today. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin, listen to this, and the ruin of the house was great. You remember what the outcome of the flood in the Colorado video was? It was death and destruction, and they did not know if they would even find the bodies. This is not a cute little parable. This should be turned into a song and should be divorced from the Sermon on the Mount. It should be taken 
in its fullness so that it can actually cut us to the heart. Theologians argue over what is the storm. This is where we're going to get into the allegorical interpretation of the text. The storm, for some, is the crises that we face in this life. It is the hardships. It is the struggles that we are faced with and must endure. For others, and this would be my view, the great storm is going to be when you and I stand before the great white throne of judgment. And our foundation is tested. Paul says that we are going to have to pass through fire. He says that anything, saints, that we built that is not first grounded on the foundation of Christ and that is built with wood and straw and rubble and hay, it will be burned up. <laughs> He's talking to the church. You don't just get to skate into heaven. <laughs> now there's room for both. The storms can be the crisis of life and it can be the it can be the great white throne of judgment that we all have to face. But here's the deal. Notice that the storm, it doesn't care if you're wise. It doesn't care if you're foolish. It doesn't care if you're righteous. It doesn't care if you're wicked. It doesn't care if you have no foundation. It doesn't care if you have a foundation. It is coming. It's coming. So whatever your interpretation is, whatever camp you fall in, you cannot escape the storm. First application point that we should take away from this parable. Even the righteous must endure. And when you fail to endure, you will prove your unrighteousness. God is not mocked, Paul says. So what are we supposed to do here, saints? Oh, I would rather just remember this parable in the ways that I've rehearsed it for so long in my life. No. God forbid. Second application, second takeaway. Jesus, he's making demands in this portion of the text, okay? These are not suggestions. <laughs> These are demands. His first demand is that we listen. By listening, we can prove that we're listening only if we actually know the words of the master. We cannot do this if we refuse to listen. And you may be able to manipulate people, but you are not capable of manipulating God. The greater evil is to think that you know what Jesus said, to know that you're mistaken, and in the end, to continue to uphold that mistaken view as you try to keep the mask on and fool people. That is evidence that you have, in fact, refused to listen. The second demand he makes is that we do. So notice, the storm is coming, and notice that the king of the earth, the judge of the living and the dead, he doesn't care if you've heard. Oh, he wants you to hear. He came and took on flesh and taught he inspired the word of God, both old and new. He continues to empower the church to carry the work until he comes again. He wants you to hear, but he doesn't care if you've heard because you can hear and you can choose to ignore. <laughs> he cares if you do. 
So you cannot divorce listening and hearing from doing because if you're not doing, you've proven that you haven't listened. Knowledge only becomes relevant when it's translated into action. Knowledge only becomes relevant when it's translated into action. Theory must become practice. Theology must become life. And let me tell you, I get super irritated with people who are like, I don't want to do theology. I just want to love Jesus. You just made a theological statement, doofus. Theos, God, ology, the study of, the science of, theology. Jesus is God. You don't get to love Jesus without doing theology. Your theology has to be put on display in your life or else it's worth it. Jesus' words, not mine. I don't want to do theology. Stop saying that. You sound like a nitwit. There are thousands of people who attend church every Sunday. They know what Jesus said, they know what Jesus taught, and they make zero effort to put it into practice. The true follower both hears and does. Period. Full stop. He doesn't choose when he does, he does. So the storm is coming, and you cannot divorce hearing from doing. So if you're doing other than God would will, stop. That's the best advice I can give you. Stop. And when you say, I'm not going to (laughs) stop, you have just revealed your foundation. You're built on sinking sand. Not my words. Take it up with Jesus. I don't like the way that you're making me feel. I don't like the way this is making me feel. You think I don't know my own life? You think I don't know my own thoughts? You think I don't know my own heart? To have that displayed on this in real time so that you could see it? (laughs) I couldn't run out of here fast enough. And we walk around looking at the lost like we're better than they are. That's the problem. Knowing how to hide it is a form of manipulation and deception. Revealing your foundation, you're worse. They love the darkness. They love the darkness. So, yep, so just to quickly recap here. As Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the first law, so Jesus goes up to give the new law. He has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Bible scholar William Barclay notes the sequential order of Matthew's Gospels. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 lay out the words of Jesus. In chapter 8, we see the deeds of Jesus. And I would say in chapter 9, and in chapter 10, and in chapter 11. So you cannot divorce the words of Jesus from the deeds of Jesus. Therefore, we cannot divorce hearing and doing. He is the example we are to follow in his footsteps. What's that? Yes, absolutely. Christ brings redemption through repentance. But the whole point of the parable 
I think is summed up in Paul's words to the church at Rome, should we sin so that grace can abound, God forbid. (laughs) Stop banking on the fact that God has grace for you and start doing what he said. (laughs) Otherwise, your foundation is shaken. Amen? All right. We're going to close there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of Jesus. They're hard. It's so much easier to overly simplify. It's so much easier, Lord, to divorce myself from the wickedness of Israel It's so much easier, Lord, not to put a mirror in front of my face and stand before it. And your word says how quickly we forget when we turn and walk away. (laughs) So my prayer this morning for this group of people who know and love you and seek to do your will is that you, Father, would help us to remember Give us a mind that holds fast to the truth and does not choose to forget it. Help our foundation, Lord, to be built on Christ, who is the rock. Help us to live lives worthy as living stones who have been grounded on the chief cornerstone. Knowing that it's not about men and their works righteousness and their justice. And it's not about a temple and its geographic location. Father, you are seeking people who will worship in spirit and in truth. And we cannot worship in spirit and truth if we do not first listen and then follow by doing. So help us to be a people who worship in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.